Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Today's guest host for the episode is our very own Mitchell Space Power fellow, Tim Ryan. Hey, thanks a lot, Slick. Earlier this year, the Chief of Space Operations, General Chance Saltzman, presented a theory of success for the Space Force, which focused on the idea of competitive endurance. He emphasized the fact that this is a theory, an idea on which guardians could build. His intention is for it to serve as a starting point for dialogue critical to the successful growth of the Space Force. And while the Space Force is still developing its processes and the way it thinks about warfare, this is open to discussion across all sectors, military, commercial, and civilian space partners. For most of the history of space operations, this was not done in public. This collaboration and innovation are focused on bringing the best ideas forward. It's time for the Space Force to question test boundaries, and explore new concepts. There will be failures, frustrations, and some skin knees along the way, but that's essential. That's how the Space Force will learn, grow, and become the Space Force the nation needs. This week, we're happy to have Dr. John Patsy Klein, Colonel L. Gardner, and our very own Henry Heron to discuss an array of space topics. And Patsy will let us know about his new book, The Fight for the Final Frontier, Irregular Warfare in Space. Dr. Klein is a retired Navy commander and a senior fellow and strategist with Falcon Research Incorporated. In addition, he is a professor of space policy and strategy in the Washington, D.C. area. Thanks again for being here. Thank you for having me. We also have Colonel L. Gardner, who is the director of space strategy, policy, and plans on the headquarters Space Force staff. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you very much. And finally... We have Henry Heron, a senior resident fellow here at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence team. Happy to be here. Now, Patsy, first, congratulations on the publication of your book. It focuses on the irresponsible, one can even say malicious activities we've witnessed in space in the last few years. Could you share with our listeners why this is so important and what was your approach in writing about it? Well, thank you for that question. It is a relief at the book's been about two years in the making. It's great to see it on the shelves available for sale. To your question, the book is important because it addresses competition and activities in the space domain that we've been witnessing for the past several decades and those that we are likely to see in the near term. I go into in the book a foundational understanding that irregular warfare in the space domain is shaped by the nature of all warfare and the universal principles of strategy. The approach I took was warfare is warfare, no matter the domain of operations. And space strategists can look to historical experience to gain insights into regular space warfare. And just to define one term uh, for our uh, listeners, irregular warfare as a definition is apart from major conventional wars against an enemy who takes a similar approach. Now, some of the listeners may be rolling their, their eyes or something like that, knowing that I defined irregular warfare as the opposite of a regular, but that's fairly common in a strategic context. So the overall point of the book is that 
Today's most pressing security concerns are best considered using irregular warfare and competition lens. Just to look at today's headlines, and especially in Ukraine, and you can see the relevance. Current national security space concerns include direct ascent, anti-satellite testing, causing threatening debris, uncooperative rendezvous and proximity operations, purposeful lazing of space systems, and jamming of satellite communications, or what we're seeing in Ukraine is a jamming of uh, GPS signals on both sides. The provocative actions fall short of the use of regular military force, and so by definition, it's considered irregular. Key point I want your listeners to take is the value of using irregular warfare to think about space security concerns is that historical experience can be used to consider solutions to known problems as well as providing future insights. Uh, as a result, political military leaders don't have to relearn new, uh, relearn old lessons. And for the United States, we don't need to unnecessarily expend blood and treasure because we can learn from historically informed strategic experience. And it's definitely best to think about these in peacetime than in conflict. Great. Thanks so much for that overview. Now, Ellen Henry, how do you see this approach helping to inform the discussion guardians are having today on things like competitive endurance and space operations in a contested environment? Well, I think one of the, the first principles for military practitioners, it has to be the idea of having a full understanding of the changing character of war. And I think what Patsy's book does is it imagines how irregular warfare works and how that overlays with space operations and it informs the Guardian in a way that might hone his thinking. It's important for us to recognize that we as professional Guardians must hone our thinking and hone our craft. And that means we have to imagine on how warfighting might unfold. And I think Patsy does an excellent job of giving us some imagery on how that might work. He offers for us irregular warfare as the theory goes, and we need to take that theory for what it's intended to do. Now, I'm classically trained through my studies at SAS that theory's purpose is to define, to categorize, to explain, and hopefully to anticipate. And what Patsy has unfolded in the book will help the Guardians understand the possibilities of how warfare might unfold if that conflict extends into space. And so it helps the Guardian anticipate what might happen. And therefore, we're not walking into this cold. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would add, you know, if you, if you look at what the Guardians have available in terms of a library that is something meaningful that they can go and read and really help produce thought, there's not a lot out there, right? If you go onto Amazon and you, you look up a space, you're going to get all kinds of science fiction stuff. You're going to get some astrophysics. You're going to get things explaining solar systems to kids. But as far as something meaningful for a guardian to dig into that is connective of what's going on in space with, with the political realities within the atmosphere, that, that type of connective thought isn't really out there. And, you know, Patsy talked about these different activities we're seeing, and then you tie that to the CSO's theory of competitive endurance. I mean, we're literally in competition. So when you think about the threats coming from countries like China and Russia, and we're trying to figure out how we can compete with them over a long term, uh, putting all of that within the context of irregular warfare, I, I think is very valuable. And it, it's going to help really define how the guardians move forward and, and further develop that theory into to practice that they can use. Great. So, Patsy, 
you have an extensive background in wargaming and exercises. So how have those experiences helped to shape your thinking? And how do you see wargaming and exercises being developed in the future? Thanks for that question. And I'm going to answer that question. Uh, but first, I would just want to underscore for the listeners that the book is not meant to be an academic exercise. So I, I teach. I love teaching. Uh, I love writing with lots of footnotes. And, you know, it's not meant to be a self-indulgence for myself. Strategy and applicable counter-strategies must serve a practical value or else they're worthless. So, you know, what I try to do in my writing is provide a real-world application to the topics and strategies in wargaming and exercise. So when thinking about the space domain in a strategic context, I found myself trying to wrestle with the prevalent thinking among national security community that many of the ongoing and nefarious malicious events in space were outside of our collective understanding. So outside of the writings of Clausewitz, uh, Sun Tzu, Thucydides. So I tried to reconcile understanding of a strategic competition in space and the daily events that are below our threshold of war in a Clausewitz sense. Uh, I asked myself, how did these events fit into an understanding of war's enduring nature and warfare's changing character, as Elle mentioned? I eventually concluded that many of the malicious and irresponsible behaviors displayed can be labeled as irregular warfare. So to the heart of your question, what should future wargaming and exercises do? We need to consider actions in space or against space architectures, not just in terms of the terrestrial fighter supporting the joint warfighter and other non-space domains. We need to include coercive actions below the threshold of what is considered armed conflict in space. And for example, exercises in wargames need to consider space-to-space -space actions in low-Earth orbit, geostationary orbit, cislunar space, and these are important strategic competition examples. We need to include cyber attacks against the ground segment. The ground segment is always forgotten about when we talk about space, all along with the lazing, jamming, and proximity operations. So uh, going back to the point, uh, current events and looking forward, I think we can actually look at cislunar space. We're talking about resource extractions on the moon, recent events, India landed on the south pole of the moon. Oh, everyone's concerned about water ice and the resources there. So I think war games and exercises can start fleshing that out a bit too. Patsy, you said something that resonated with me, that it's meant to be beyond an academic exercise. I will say that I think that you nailed that. What I see in the book is an opportunity for guardians, as I mentioned before, about honing our thinking. You have to think about what you're going to do and how things might happen before you get there to position yourself optimally. And the book gives us an opportunity as guardians to elevate what I will say is our warfighting IQ. That's an opportunity there for us to bring our collective consciousness and our collective intelligence on how the battlefield looks and might look. I think the book does that. And so there's practical considerations in the book beyond an academic or theory-based consideration. Thank you for that. Yeah, and, and I would add, I think your point about, um, well, the ground sites always get ignored in exercises. You know, I spent most of my career outside of what was Air Force Base Command, so I've done lots of exercises over in UCOM and PACOM. And, and if, if a guardian can just use these thoughts to get those types of things injected in some of those exercises, it, it will have definitely earned whatever time was spent having that discussion, right? The, 
we need to have those things in the exercises, not just space command exercises. Great. Well, to change it up a little bit, you know, let, let's talk about the instruments of national power. Now, our audience, of course, is very familiar with what those are. But, Patsy, in your book, you've added lawfare to this mix. Now, can you let the audience know, what do you mean by that? And why is it important to future operations? Yeah, to that point, I mean, I spend an entire chapter on the subject of lawfare in space. And it is an instrument of national power because it serves as a means that countries can uh, achieve their national objectives. So in defining the term lawfare, I define it as the intentional distortion and misuse of legal regimes for competitive advantage. If you notice, it's a combination of the words law and warfare, which can be misleading because lawfare actions will fall mostly outside the use of military force and acts of violence. The term's been around since the early 2000s. Uh, Charles Dunlap in 2001 popularized the concept uh, which is used predominantly today. Uh, his definition is a little bit different. It's the use of law as a weapon of war. But regardless of the definition used, it is important as an instrument of national power. Within the context of strategy and the enduring nature of war, lawfare has strong elements of both the indirect approach and a protracted strategy. For many states seeking to employ unconventional methods of a competition, as is demonstrated in real-world historical experience by both China and Russia, Lawfare is seen as a powerful tool of achieving political aims when using a cumulative strategy or using time as a weapon. Uh, the topic of lawfare is important because we're seeing through the actions of China and Russia, the international community's establishment of norms of behavior in space and what is considered acceptable use of space weapons or proximity operations. You know, that's real timely as well because we just had the EU came out to support the U.S proposition from a year and a half ago on the banning of direct ascent anti-satellite weapons. Wonderful. Great. Well, the chief of space operations, General Saltzman, has put forward three lines of effort. Field combat ready forces, amplify the guardian spirit, and partner to win. Now, part of fielding a combat ready force is ensuring they're trained in an environment that prepares them for the fight tonight. Can you discuss why the need to innovate and, in particular, develop new training capabilities is such an imperative. Yeah, I'll answer that, and I'm going to put it in the context of a regular space warfare. The idea of using novel technologies is just kind of part of the American culture for strategies. You know, generally, the benefits of technology and resulting innovation is considered in two parts. It's either creating asymmetric advantage or strategic effect, or creating new operational concepts for war. For the space strategist, it's helpful to think about technology's utility in terms of strategic effect. Technology and its application is really meaningless in a strategic sense, apart from the effects achieved in the realization of outcomes that positively affect conflict's outcome at the strategic level of war. Within the U.S. national security community, often there's a widespread belief that superior technology is always the answer. Without understanding what the question is, that question being, how will war's outcome be affected? Bigger, faster, and higher are often seen as the ultimate criteria for technological success, but such data is meaningless in isolation to the aims of strategy. Second point, technology and its innovation is more powerful than merely improving wartime tactics if the innovation leads to new operational concepts or organizational adaptions. That is, does the technology 
that affects innovation, affect how we fight. Uh, once novel take, uh, technologies take hold within military service, including the U.S. Space Force, new operational concepts can be explored. In turn, new operational concepts and warfighting styles can lead to more uh, finding more efficient and effective methods for employing military forces to achieve political aims. You know, just a word of caution, technology and its use, it takes time. And the U.S. military is often impatient and expects too much too soon from technological innovation. So for the U.S. Space Force, the lesson is you need to be patient and not expect too much too soon from technological innovation. Patsy, that's a good point that you're bringing up. And, and the term that comes to mind for me is technological determinism. And the cautionary tale that you bring up is important. And I think it resonates with some things that I've heard when I've done reading on what are the lessons learned from Ukraine. And I recall that one of the lessons learned that, that I have read, I believe it was General Saltzman who mentioned this, is when we look at Russia, versus Ukraine, what we see is a larger, seemingly more capable, and certainly more technologically advanced country struggling to obtain victory over what arguably might be considered a lesser adversary technologically. And what that means to me is one cannot simply rely on technology alone to derive victory. The training, the intelligence, the IQ that I talked about, that warfighting IQ, those things also matter. And so it is, it is not an either or, it is a yes and. All of these things must be brought to bear to achieve victory. That's great. Thank you. Now, El, can you discuss the theory of competitive endurance and why is it so important to the chief? And why has he put it out to be able to have guardians driving the need to be discussing and developing his theory? Thank you for the question. I think the theory of success, and it's important to, to dissect those words too, theory of success, you'll note that it's not a theory of victory. It's a theory of success. And, and there's a reason behind that. This is General Saltzman's think piece on how he is imagining the basic framework of the way things should work and the way we should be thinking about going forward with what we field in order to have a discussion about how we fight. And so he unfolds in there three key levers, if you will. Deny first mover advantage, avoid operational surprise, and responsible counter space campaign. And each of those have important considerations in there. And I think what General Saltzman has shown that he's doing, particularly when you look at the first two levers there, what we're doing now is we're recognizing, you've heard us all say space is a warfighting domain and space is no longer a sanctuary. One of the reasons that saying that is important is because there has to be something that comes after that. And what comes after that is a recognition, a full-throated recognition that our access to space is not going to be self-actualizing. There will be opportunities, there will be times when our adversaries will see our asymmetric advantage and want to take that away from us. 
possibly through irregular warfare methodologies. And so for us, what that means is as we field new systems, we have to pivot away from the architecture of the past where we simply fielded systems that were efficient in terms of operation. And now we have to imagine, well, how do I ensure that this system can withstand attack? So we need more resilient systems. By building disaggregated, proliferated, resilient capabilities, what we're doing is we are denying the adversary the incentive to attack us first because the value that will be derived from that attack will be minimal and there won't be an advantage. And by disincentivizing the adversary from doing the attack, we may find ourselves not having a scenario where conflict extends into space. And that is what winning looks like. That is what success looks like. Hence the term theory of success as opposed to theory of victory. Because victory implies that I've now had to pit my capability against your capability and I prevailed. And that is what I think that he is imagining in this theory of success. And I think there are elements within Patsy's book that actually give us some things to think about as we begin to operationalize General Salzman's theory of success. So L did a great summary of classical deterrence theory, summarizing what deterrence by denial of benefit is. And that is such a powerful form of deterrence. You know, we still need deterrence by punishment methods, but if you can convey to your rivals through mission assurance, resilience, proliferated architectures, distributed networks, that no matter what you do, your actions are going to be unsuccessful. Acting against us and our allies is a futile endeavor. That is power. And I think that's the great focus that we need to look at going forward. Wonderful. Great discussion there. Thank you. Another one of the CSO's lines of effort is partnering to win. Now, we've seen in Ukraine the utility offered by commercial space providers for communication and intelligence. Patsy, can you talk to us a little bit about how do you see the integration of commercial space companies in terms of irregular space warfare? It's going to be a, a key part. And even for regular warfare, commercials is a, playing a key part. I think we've seen that in, in the last few years. So I spent a chapter on the book looking at commercial activities routinely when I find myself writing. I find uh, going back to commercial capabilities and services and the advantages that they bring. So the use of commercial companies are part of the indirect approach that's coming from B.H. Littlehart, providing asymmetric advantage and are included in the strategy of irregular space warfare. Uh, commercial companies have a history and a record. Uh, they may support a wide range of actions from benign presence, coercive technology and capability demonstrations, and the use of force to compel an adversary to acquiesce on some demand. Often the line is blurred as to whether these entities are acting in a traditional commercial sense, as we would understand the West, especially with respect to how China has its view of commercial and how they're very uh, tightly coupled with the desires of the party. And for this reason, several others, you know, how best to integrate commercial activities into our own strategies and how to consider those of our rivals is uh, well suited for examination and maybe from some of the listeners of this podcast. You know, going back to current events, we see Russia had a cyber attack against Viasat ahead of their invasion in Ukraine. 
Also, in May of 2022, Russia jammed SpaceX's broadband internet communication signals coming from the Starlink constellation serving the region of Ukraine. So going forward, and if I were to forecast the next few years, I think we'll see commercial space services playing an ever-increasing role in logistical services, such as reshueling and geostationary orbit. And we're kind of seeing that at present, along with what we consider traditional security services. So force for hire, uh, especially when we look to self-protect some of the high-value assets in uh, geo or elsewhere. One of the things that I'll say about commercial capabilities, as, as Patsy discussed and teed up in the book, is I think that we are really at an important time in our history where we are seeing significant advances from the commercial sector in terms of innovation. And with some of those dual use capabilities comes an opportunity for us to leverage some of those capabilities militarily. And there's significant opportunities for us to take what commercial is providing and introduce speed and agility and oftentimes unclassified capabilities that can be brought to bear. And so I imagine a scenario where, because we have challenges with classification, if I am concerned about revealing sources and methods for some imagery capability that I have, and I need to share that with my allies, I imagine a scenario where a commercial capability that has reasonably exquisite capabilities can take an image and we can disseminate an unclassified image to our partners and our partners now can understand the context in which we need them to align with us for whatever moves we need to make. And so that's just one example that I can think of where commercial is providing extraordinary innovation and has immediate impact and offers extraordinary value to the fight that we're in. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I think the value of commercial capabilities to uh, national security means is is got to be evident to anybody who's working in the domain. But I think it actually dovetails back to one of the previous questions. I think that we also have to remember that the commercial entities have concerns as well. And the best way that we're going to be able to move forward together with the military interest and the commercial concerns is by bringing those commercial entities into the exercises and into the war games so that we can understand um, what their thoughts are, what their liabilities are, what their concerns are, um, and find a way to work through that so that we can use those capabilities, the unclassified capabilities that may make things a little easier for us or just additional coverage of things. Uh, but they also recognize that, hey, they're now participating in some type of military operation. And so how are we assisting them to, to get to a comfort level where that's something that they want to be a part of? And, and that really can only be done safely through those exercises and working. So Ellen Henry brought up a great point and, you know, to Henry's point about threat sharing. So, you know, historically space has been a very overly classified environment, but because most of the assets on orbit right now are commercial and going forward in the next years, they're going to be commercial. We need to figure out how to pull information from commercial and then also how to share threat information. And the other point, uh, piling on to what Elle was saying, you know, we, let's look at what we're doing with commercial and current events. So Putin made it clear that he considers 
uh, SpaceX and Starlink to be an extension of the U.S. So, you know, the United States should expect its rivals or future potential adversaries to target their commercial. That's probably not an original insight, but I will flip that for the U.S. Space Force. How do we feel about targeting our future potential adversaries' commercial assets, realizing that they may have different relationships? Yeah, I think that's a, a conversation that we need to have with our lawyers, you know, because we have international humanitarian law, the law of armed conflict, you know, before we just say, well, of course, we're going to go after them because they provide military capabilities. You know, our allies are going to want to be part of this conversation and they may feel they have, may have different comfort levels depending on where they are in this uh, competition continuum. Well, I think that has been great. Thanks so much. And I think this is just going to be probably one of the first of many discussions on competitive endurance and space operations in a contested environment as we go forward. It was great today to not only have a, a strategist and, a, and an author with us, but it is always absolutely wonderful to have Guardian's voice in the room, being able to hear from the force, and we welcome that as we go forward. So thanks again for all of you for coming, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks again for letting me do the hosting duties today. Back to you, Slick. Tim, excellent job. Thanks for taking the stick. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.